Welcome to Sport Management Review Insights. I'm your host, Vito Subro. How sport is used to achieve social development goals is an issue that Sport Management Review has given significant attention to. And you can listen to previous podcasts with John Welty-Peachy, Arden Anderson, and Kat Raw on the topic. One factor that tends to arise in sport for development research is group conflict. And that's what we're going to focus on in this episode. And joining us to discuss this is a very special guest. He's published widely on sport for development with his work cited all over the world. He's Associate Professor of Sport Management at University of Technology, Sydney. It's Nico Shulenkov. Welcome, Nico. Welcome, Vito. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. You've been an author on many other papers we've actually done podcasts on. So it's great to finally have you on. Well, I look forward to uh, spending some time with you and uh, this is outside your normal football role. So we switched <laughs> to rugby league for this one. That's okay. I, I'm happy with all sport these days. Nico and co-author Emma Sherry recently published Applying Intergroup Contact Theory to Sport for Development. Now, Nico, you've published a great deal of research in this area, as I've mentioned before. How did this paper help our understanding of sport for development? As you mentioned, we looked at one of those very popular, one of the most popular concepts underpinning sport for development work, and that's the contact hypothesis, which tells us that under certain circumstances, contact can lead to positive outcomes. Not under all circumstances, and that's where the interest comes in from a sport management perspective. So if we manage things right, we can create positive contact outcomes by bringing groups together that otherwise struggle to interact. Now, there's a long history of intergroup contact, um, not only in sport, of course, but in other areas of study, but also in sport-related development work. And um, we, in this paper, wanted to take a very explicit focus on the contact hypothesis and demonstrate the suitability and applicability of intergroup contact theory as a framework to analyze sport for development interventions. And that in particularly challenging contexts, including areas of conflict. Why do you think it was important to take an intergroup tension and conflict perspective when we're looking at sport for development research? Yes, sport for development is sometimes labeled sport for development and peace. Now, this end peace is something that I've always been interested in because it relates to conflict studies, reconciliation, peace building. And in my view, it's slightly different as a thematic area than some of the others. So sport for development, when we look at social benefits, educational outcomes, health-related messaging, we're actually looking at telling people what to do or what to change or how we can achieve positive benefits for the community or individuals. Now, when we looked at or look at conflict resolution or peace building, the role of the people doing the work changes slightly. It's not just messaging. You become sort of a facilitator to build bridges between groups or you're trying to facilitate contact in a way that it reduces conflict, that it leads to reconciliation. So you work as a facilitator more than a messenger. And to understand and manage inclusive intergroup change processes, this conflict resolution perspective seems critical. And that's why conflict resolution in this particular case uh, is not so much about one country versus another country in sport or one community playing another community and we're looking at the conflict and the potential, but we're looking at groups that struggle to engage or that struggle to come together and using sport in the right way to facilitate positive change. You use intergroup contact theory as your framework. Can you tell us about the theory, why it was useful here? 
Yes, so intergroup contact theory is basically centered on uh, Alport's contact hypothesis, which lists four key conditions for positive intergroup contact. And we'll briefly touch on all four of them. So the first one is equal status within the contact situation. So you make sure that the groups that you bring together have equal status during sport. And in sport, we can create that and make sure that groups that perhaps in society are disadvantaged or don't have the same rights or have less power than others have an equal playing field. So that's number one. The second one, then you focus on intergroup cooperation. So that means if you establish a scenario where groups actually have to work together uh, and they cannot achieve things without the contribution of the other group, then we have a better chance of, I guess, achieving positive intergroup contact and outcomes in the end. The third one is common goals. So we're creating sort of a desirable incentive for engagement. So if we both achieve a situation where both groups want to uh, work towards something that is of importance to them, they both want to contribute, and we have a common goal, then it's very less likely that we have contact issues or conflict within that scenario. And the last one is support of authorities, law or custom which relates to rules and regulation, which again in sport, we have this wonderful situation that rules in a particular sport are universal anywhere in the world and they apply to everyone equally. But also the support factor of authorities, custom relates to partnerships uh, in communities, support by organizations of sport, ministries that may support a project, but also in, in a cultural setting, the um, community leaders or chiefs in, in particular community groups, if they give their support, we have a much better chance of achieving positive contact situations than if that support is missing. So in this study, we looked at this contact hypothesis as our framework and investigated a specific sport for development program in Papua New Guinea uh, and analyzed its design and delivery against these set criteria. And we also, tried to find or wanted to investigate if there's any additional factors that may have been important for the success of the initiative. I think that was a wonderful summary of intergroup contact theory. I feel like I've read it all now. You mentioned that Papua New Guinea was the case study. I know Papua New Guinea absolutely loves rugby league. If you can imagine football in Europe, baseball in America, in Papua New Guinea, it is rugby league. Tell us why this uh, using Papua New Guinea as, as your case study was, was quite useful. Well, it's an amazing country, Papua New Guinea. And it's, as you say, it's the only country in the world where rugby league is the national sport. And they are absolutely mad about rugby league. And that's interesting because it's not only the, the men that are playing, it's also women. It's everyone excited about rugby league. Everyone knows the game. Everyone plays the game. Everyone is interested in the game. But also Papua New Guinea is exciting because it's, it's very culturally diverse. We've got significant challenges from a cultural intergroup perspective, like great challenges, but also opportunities across social, educational, health-related domains. It's a country that is just, just fascinating to, to study and a program, NRL or rugby league based, that was just exciting to be part of. Also, rugby league is, is popular in Papua New Guinea, but in the wider sport for development context, it's pretty under-researched. So there's a massive focus on football, uh, soccer, football. But in Papua New Guinea, it's rugby league, and it gets significant support, not only by the communities, but also by authorities, 
which helped a lot in designing these programs and running them, selling them and getting support uh, from the community and from the educational sector with which we cooperated. To do this research, you engaged in reflective analysis of existing data. It's a method that I think sounds fantastic, but it's not a common method. Can you tell us more about reflective analysis and if I'm completely wrong about it being easy? Well, it's, uh, it's not necessarily easy, but it's something that um, may be useful, particularly when you've spent a lot of time collecting data over a long period of time. And in this case, Emma Sherry and I and, and a couple of our support crew, we had over three years of an involvement with this particular sport for development program and we collected all sorts of data and when we were looking back at some stage we thought well we have all this data we know the contact hypothesis um, and whilst we didn't use that framework at the outset to design the project or, or to an analyze it in some way we thought well based on our lived experiences here as researchers we can perhaps showcase what this league belong life the league for life nrl program had done and how the program had achieved its goals. So we needed to look back and reflect on what we've done and in that way, reanalyze the data and look at it differently from what we initially had planned. So it's, I don't think it's an easy process, but it's perhaps once you've worked out what you wanna use it for, it can be quite useful. So it's, it's perhaps not the standard way of doing things, but something that we certainly enjoyed and where we had a framework that uh, made sense to be analyzed in this particular way. It doesn't sound easy at all, actually. Look, and if you want to hear more about qualitative uh, methods as well, check out the podcast with Lorena Haber. But from this analysis, what were the key findings after you engaged in this uh, reflective analysis? Yeah, overall, I would say that we concluded that the flexibility of intergroup context theory and its applicability in a range of context situations actually make it a quite useful conceptual framework with which to design and deliver and evaluate sport for development programs especially those that aim to achieve inclusive social transformation in challenging community settings, I guess. So the framework itself uh, was suitable, but we also, as I mentioned earlier, tried to look if there was anything else that perhaps this framework didn't capture adequately, which we believed was, was significant for its success or its, uh, the delivery of, of uh, the program here. And we found something that we called as a theme cultural relevance and excitement potential. Now, I'll explain that briefly. So cultural relevance is perhaps easier to explain. In this case, the cultural relevance was, was important because there was a sport that was suitable for the country. And when I say for the country, in this particular case, it was suitable for all of the participants that were part of this program. So it wasn't that half of the group didn't know the sport, the other one, the other half did. Well, there was inequity between uh, the groups in, in, I guess, the understanding of the sport, the passion for the sport. In this program, a school-based program for boys and girls in Papua New Guinea, it was actually a relevant program because everyone had the same sort of understanding and knowledge of rugby league and a quite positive uh, attitude towards that sport in particular. Now, that second factor of excitement potential perhaps builds on that a little bit more and, and explains why the program and the way that it was delivered was successful because it was exciting for groups to engage. It wasn't just a common goal. We all you know, come together and play sport. It was actually exciting for a number of factors. Now, yes, it's the country's favorite sport, but it's also when we take NRL or rugby league to the communities or the schools, 
the program uh, managers, they were quite clever in designing learning experiences for students that went beyond the traditional showcasing or talking about rugby league and what it means. They designed little booklets, for example, in maths. And so instead of saying, oh, what's 160 plus 120? They said, oh, look, this player, he weighs 120 kilos and he's battling with this player who weighs 120. So how many kilos have we got in total? So there was, there was more of it. And of course, the favorite players were all mentioned and, and everyone was excited. So it, um, it just took a little bit of an extra step to provide some spark to the traditional delivery. And another element here that was, was important was that the head of the program was a former NRL player, played in Australia. He was the former captain of the national team. And he was now not a superstar on TV. He was someone who was really committed to the delivery on this grassroots level. Now, that added a lot of credibility, networks, community support, and opportunities for leverage beyond the traditional look at flying in a role model, in inverted commas, who was just, you know, taking the photos and Lionel Messi is in some slum in Africa and then photo opportunity and everyone's shaking hands and we're leaving. This guy was committed to this for years. He's been an absolute champion, Mark Mom. Uh, he's still involved as the Pacific coordinator for rugby league. And that was something that was really special, not only for participants, but also for parents, for all the organizations that were meant to support this program. And so there was additional excitement. Now that was the excitement potential element. And finally, another point that added excitement was that um, the school staff, they were teachers, of course, and they were trying to help deliver this NRL-based program, but they were also learners, which means that in some way, the kids were not just learners, they were also teachers at times. And when we look at this from a, an intergroup perspective, the dynamics change completely. So some of the kids who perhaps, you know, had lesser opportunities to shine in class, well, here that was their moment. It was their opportunity to be uh, in a leading position, talking about the rules, the game of rugby league, playing, showcasing their skills, but also helping others and giving them, I guess, an opportunity to be part of, of an educational setting in which they were leading rather than just receiving. So there's little elements that uh, help to make it special and that help to make it exciting. And so this cultural relevance and excitement potential factor was for us critical in addition to the four factors that were part of the contact hypothesis initially. That seems to make a, a lot of sense to me. And I can see how that would have got the, the Papua New Guinea population really excited, particularly having, having the ex-rugby league player there who's really involved. I think um, that would be really important. Um, Importantly, from the theoretical perspective, how did this advance our understanding of intergroup contact theory? Yes, so the first major goal that we had was to show that intergroup contact theory can be used as an explicit framework for analysing sport for development programming. Implicitly, it had been in the background of a lot of projects in the past. Now we wanted to use it explicitly to show that it is actually working as, as a good framework. Second, as I just mentioned, we argued that this one additional factor, cultural relevance and excitement potential, was quite important for the success of the program and perhaps similar programs that are in the sport for development sector trying to make a difference. So cultural relevance really represents a precondition for any meaningful planning and management across groups, whilst this excitement potential is, I think, paramount for being positively different. And I'm saying that because 
there is a lot of sport for development programs happening these days and they used to be different and exciting 15 years ago nowadays we know what sport for development is and we still need or we have to keep on working on being special and different and exciting uh, it's no longer enough to be a sport for development you're not different anymore to the rest of the sports world so within sport for development i think we have to be innovative and creative in trying to design opportunities that are positively different and that get the local buy-in and engagement and collaboration uh, from the people that you need to make it a success. So Nico, based on those ideas, based on, on making things exciting and, and different and not doing the same old thing we've done for 15 years, uh, aside from getting everyone to read all the papers you've written and, and John Milty PG and Kat Roar and, and everyone else, what would be your practical advice to people working in the sport for development programs? Yeah, I think everyone get really bored in the, in the real world when they had to read all those 35-page-long essays that we produce in academia. But I guess from a, from a practical perspective, it's really about trying to maximise the benefits for everyone involved. And it's, it's really the sport for development program organisers or managers' responsibility to activate and leverage the potential of sport on and off the pitch. And so on the pitch, it's about creating positively different and exciting moments, but it's also off the pitch where we're only starting to learn that the off-pitch activities, the ones where we do focus on the sport plus things like the peace building, the cultural education, the, the social opportunities that we provide with cross-cultural exchange, et cetera, that they are not the standard things, but actually exciting to be different. And I think that is something that we still have to work on and that we can be better at. For the last, as I said, last 15 years, we've, we've learned how to do this and how to um, create a sport for development program that is, that is working and that is doing its job. I think it's time to take the next step. And with so many sport for development programs out there, unless we're really positively different, uh, we will struggle to have participants engage and stakeholders support our initiatives because they know by now what's going on and they want to make that next step and really support those programs that... Um, again, try to create a spark and, and do something that is not the norm in sport for development. I think that advice is great. And I'm sure in a couple of years, you're going to see the difference. You're going to go into that research context and you're going to see that everyone's taking new ideas on board and the excitement is paramount. Well, I hope so. I mean, it's, it is still an exciting space and I think it's a great opportunity to, again, reflect on what we've done over the years and just see where there is new opportunities to to do something perhaps slightly different. And if that's in, you know, for the researchers is in trying different methods or trying different contexts, but for those people that are in the programming and into the design and in the delivery of programs, well, it's perhaps about new partnerships as well. You know, we're, also, we're traditionally working with sport organizations, with uh, non-governmental organizations. Well, is there other partners that we can work with? Is it just the sports people we, we work with? Perhaps it's the music industry, the tourism industry. There are great examples popping up, but I think there's plenty more that we can, um, I guess, use and leverage to really achieve those wider development outcomes that we're all aiming for. Sounds like there's plenty more research for you to do as well. well. I hope so. I mean, this is hopefully for us just the start. I mean, there's still a couple of years that we have to do this job, so it better be exciting. <laughs> I'm sure it will be. Thanks so much, Nico. Thanks very much, Vito. Thanks for your time. And thanks for listening to Sport Management Review Insights. Head to the Sport Management Review website to check out all the latest researches being published, including the article discussed in this episode, Applying Intergroup Contact Theory to Sport for Development. That's it for this episode, but of course, there are many more you can listen to on your favorite podcast player. And if you can follow the podcast and give us a five-star rating, that'd be great too. 
Until next time, it's bye for now.